0: Hey, it's Guy here. So just for a second, imagine early humans, right? Living in a jungle or a savanna like 2 million years ago. And we weren't the biggest animal or the strongest or the fastest. We couldn't swim or even climb very well. So how did we survive? Well, in this episode, we explore some of the unbelievable ways humans have learned to adapt. It's called adaptation, and it originally aired in November of 2015. from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So you might be a really terrible runner. Maybe it's just not your
2: thing. But this guy... Yep, I'm right here.
0: Great. Oh, perfect. He
2: sure. is out to convince you... I'm Chris McDougall. I'm the author of Born to Run. ...that millions of
0: years ago, evolution turned us into runners. And Chris says running to be precise long distance running is basically all we got
2: i mean think about this right now if you stripped me naked and you chucked me out in the woods Mm -hmm. i have no natural weaponry at all i mean humans as animals we're not very strong
0: you yeah right
2: we can't climb very well we don't swim very well we can't fly we have no fangs, we got nothing I probably would not walk back out of those woods.
0: There's a theory about human evolution, and it argues that the human brain basically just exploded in size about two million years ago. And a lot of that growth came from food, which included eating animals. But we also know that humans only started to kill their prey with rocks and spears about 200,000 years ago. So a big anthropological
2: mystery which Chris laid out on the TED stage. So somehow, for nearly two million years, we are killing animals without any weapons. Now, we're not using our strength because we are the biggest sissies in the jungle. Okay? Every other animal is stronger than we are. They have fangs, they have claws, they have nimbleness, they have speed. You know, we think Usain Bolt is fast. Usain Bolt can get his ass kicked by a squirrel. Okay? We're not fast. That, that would be an Olympic event. Turn a squirrel loose. Whoever catches a squirrel, you get a gold medal. <laughs> So no weapons, no speed, no strength, no fangs, no claws. How are we killing these animals? Perhaps it's because humans, as much as we like to think of ourselves as masters of the universe, actually evolved as nothing more than a pack of hunting dogs. Maybe we evolved as a hunting pack animal because the one advantage we have in the wilderness is sweat. Better than any other mammal on Earth, we can sweat really well. But the advantage of that is the fact that when it comes to running under hot heat for long distances, we're superb, we're the best on the planet. You take a horse on a hot day, and after about five or six miles, that horse has a choice. It's either gonna breathe, or it's gonna cool off, but it ain't doing both. We can. So what if we evolved as hunting pack animals? What if the only natural advantage we had in the world was the fact that we could get together as a group, go out there on that African savanna, pick out an antelope, and go out as a pack and run that thing to death? I mean, we essentially evolved to endure. That's exactly it. That is our one superpower on Earth. Yeah. And I love it too because it's not the superpower you would choose for yourself. You know, if you were given all of the powers in the animal kingdom at your disposal, you think, I want to soar like a hawk. I want to swim like a dolphin. But actually, it was that ability to sweat which made every other great human achievement possible because the fact that we could sweat allowed us to run super long distances on hot days yeah, so rather than overpowering animals rather than outsprinting them, we can endure. We can go and go and go and go and go They would just collapse and fall over and go and go and go.
0: This is how we became who we are by adapting. And though we think of adaptation as something intrinsic, like evolution, it can also be a choice, a decision you make to change and a power we all have. So on the show today, we're going to explore ideas about adaptation, whether it's adapting to our biological circumstances or our physical limitations or the changing world around us. For Chris McDougall, the idea that humans adapted to run long distances means that somewhere deep inside of us, we're built for it. So the obvious question Chris asked is, if we're intrinsically
2: meant to do this, how come most of us don't. And the answer to it, I think, can be found down in the Copper Canyons of Mexico, where there's a tribe, a reclusive tribe called the Tarumata Indians. They have been living essentially unchanged for the past 400 years. When the conquistadors arrived in North America, you had two choices. You could either fight back and engage, or you could take off. The Mayans and the Aztecs engaged, which is why there are very few Mayans and Aztecs. The Tarahumada had a different strategy. They took off and hid in this labyrinthine, networking, kind of spider webbing system of canyons called the Copper Canyons. And there they've remained since the 1600s, essentially the same same way they've always been. Deep in the old age, 70 and 80 years old, these guys aren't running marathons, they're running mega marathons. They're not doing 26 miles, they're doing 100, 150 miles at a time, and apparently without injury, without problems. Wow. I mean, how did this happen? What's the story? So here's the thing. When I first went down to the Copper Canyons to look for the Tarahumata, I thought that what I was going to be finding was, like, you know, Professor X's X-Man Academy. I thought I was going to find this, like, culture of, like, mutants. Right. What I discovered instead was this is normal humanity. I was looking into our own past. I was actually looking at what humans really are. We're the ones that have adapted to an artificial culture. The taromata are kind of like living Smithsonian exhibits. They are preserving the same natural abilities that humans relied on millions of years ago. And today,
0: Chris believes most of us have actually over-adapted we've lost something primal about how we run. And the story of how that may have happened starts with a guy named Bill Bowerman.
2: And he was a coach at the University of
0: Oregon. Bowerman coached track and field there. And in the mid-1970s, he heard about a group of
2: people in New Zealand who would run through the hills near their town. Former cardiac patients, people who had had heart attacks, and Bowerman thought, well, this is crazy. You know, this this, this idea of, like, jogging through the mountains is insane. These people are going to die. But what he realized is these people were actually prospering. Instead of their hearts giving out, their hearts were getting stronger. Okay, so long
0: story short, running was not exactly the thing it is today back in the 1970s. So Bowerman brings the phenomenon of jogging to the U.S., And he starts by inviting students to come jog with him on the weekend. And one of those students was a guy on Bill Bowerman's track team. His name was Phil Knight. And he had an idea.
2: Phil said, hey, you know, as long as people are interested in this new hobby of jogging, there's not much we can do to capitalize on except for one thing. The only thing you can use is a pair of shoes. So Phil Knight started the company of Blue Ribbon Sports, which became Nike. And he started to innovate and mess around with shoes. Now, the early Nike running shoes were, like, the same kind of things that Jesse Owens and Roger Bannister wore.
0: Yeah, so, like, what was Jesse Owens running in?
2: A pair of slippers. Everybody's. Again, essentially, it's actually not very different than what elite runners wear today, which is the thinnest sliver of protection underneath their soles, nothing else. But what really made Nike's fortune is bigger is better. The bigger you can make it, the more cushiony, the more soft, the more people are going to be attracted to it. So it was really Nike that came up with this idea of the cushioned running shoe.
0: Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, the first time I saw Nike Airs, you know, you saw the little window in the shoe, in the
2: sole, and you thought, oh, how cool, you're walking on air. And that's the thing about it too. The real big breakthrough that Nike came up with is this idea that if you don't buy the right shoe, you're gonna get injured. And that's where all this cushioning and motion control and all this foot correction stuff began.
0: As for exactly what this all has to do with those tribes in Mexico and how Chris made that connection, well, he's a runner.
2: I would say just about every
0: day, yeah. And he started a couple of years after college to lose weight.
2: But I kept getting hurt. I kept getting injured, and I would see doctors, and they would say, well, you know, dude, you're, you're built like Shrek. Of, of course you're getting injured. So i given up running for years. Hmm. It was only after I went down to the Copper Canyons and I watched these, like, 80-year-old... Tarahumara runners doing 30 miles through the mountains that I thought, there probably is a a right way to run.
0: It took a few years of studying the Tarahumara Indians for Chris McDougall to figure out the secret, what he still believes is the right way to run. And when he did figure it out, it wasn't just a turning point in his own life. It was a moment that would reshape the entire multi-billion dollar running shoe industry.
2: So here's the big Light bulb moment for me. In 1994, someone got the idea of entering a group of Tarahumata runners in this legendary race called the Leadville Trail 100. It's a 100-mile race through the Rocky Mountains. They entered the race, and they just obliterated the field. And not only did they win, they had been given new running shoes to wear. They didn't like them, so they went to the town dump and carved out sandals from discarded tires strapped them on and ran 100 miles in them. So essentially what they did was they preserved the adaptations which allowed humans to survive in hostile environments for most of our existence. And
0: once Chris wrote about this, you can imagine what happened next. It inspired the entire barefoot running movement. Chris is the reason you see people wearing those five-fingered toe shoes at the gym, the reason running shoes seem to get lighter and lighter every time you go out looking for a new pair, And when Chris gave this TED Talk back in 2010, that movement was just taking off.
2: So what I've been seeing today is there is kind of a growing subculture uh, of barefoot runners, people who have gotten rid of their shoes. And what they have found uniformly is you get rid of the shoes, you get rid of the stress, you get rid of the injuries and the ailments. And what you find is something that Taramara might have known for a very long time, that uh, this can be a whole lot of fun. I've experienced it personally myself. I was injured all my life. And then in my early 40s, I got rid of my shoes and my... Okay,
0: we should point out that there's been a lot of public debate about the health benefits of running barefoot. In fact, more than a few people have been injured trying to run barefoot. But Chris McDougall's theory on our over-adaptation does make you wonder whether we've lost something primal about how our bodies work.
2: If you look at the foot, the foot is as Amazing piece of architecture. It has an arch which absorbs shock. It has these five toes which spread out and balance. It has these twenty-six intricately connected bones and ligaments and tendons and sensors. It is an unbelievable miracle of creation. And yet, somehow, some guy in Oregon in a lab thinks he can sketch something which is better than that. I mean, it made sense at a certain
0: time in our history that we had to adapt to chase gazelles. So we we needed to be barefoot. But now we, we have to adapt to walk the, the long aisles of Costco to load our cart. <laughs> so is there a possibility that, you know, another two, three hundred
2: years of cushion running will uh, just, you know, sort of change our physiology and we'll be fine? I hope not. It's so unnecessary. Like, why would you bother? Why, <laughs> why would you bother to try adapt <laughs> to something? Like we could adapt to hitting ourselves in the face with a hammer if we kept at it long enough. But you know what? Maybe just put the hammer down. Don't, don't do it anymore. I'm I'm actually really glad that we don't have to chase gazelles anymore. You know, yes and no. Obviously, I haven't moved to the Copper Canyon to live in a cave, you know. (laughs) On the other hand, if you're a running culture, you can't be materialistic. So, you know, you're not hoarding a bunch of crap and working nine to five and, like, attacking your neighbors. You're just, like, chilling and running.
0: Chris McDougall, he wrote Born to Run. You can check out his entire talk at TED.com. Our show today, Ideas About Adaptation. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First to WordPress.com. Creating your website on WordPress helps your customers find you, remember you, and connect with you. At WordPress, you'll find hundreds of beautiful designs, the ability to add a custom domain name, and features to make your business more visible online. WordPress offers 24-7 customer service if you need help. Get 15% off your new website today at WordPress.com. Thanks also to the new Surface Pro from Microsoft. This powerful laptop has a long battery life that lasts all day, so you can run the programs you need. It's also so you can get more done when you're working on your passion projects around town. The Surface Pro goes wherever you go because at under two pounds, it's light and fits in your bag. And it works with your iPhone, so it's synced with your life. The new Surface Pro is the lightest, most powerful Surface Pro ever.
1: Ever find yourself saying, that happened this week? Us too. All the time. I'm Tamara Keith, host of the NPR Politics Podcast, where we follow the political twists and turns and break down what it all means. Find us on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about adaptation. And Chris McDougall, who we just heard from, was talking mainly about an adaptation that had to happen for the survival of our species. But for Daniel Kish, the adaptation was about his own survival. Great, thanks for doing this. Yeah, you know, I was saying, you should get like residual checks from NPR.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll have to make such an arrangement.
0: Okay, so you may have heard Daniel on NPR before. He was on an episode of Invisibilia, but in case you don't know his story, He's been blind since he was an infant. And yet somehow by adapting, Daniel figured out a way to see.
3: Yes, it is a form of seeing, but it's a form of seeing that, that's really quite native to the human brain. Daniel sees with
0: sound. Do you mind demonstrating what th- that experience is like like in the room you're in?
3: Well this is not a room that's very well suited to this acoustically it's it's a, it's a padded <laughs> yes, studio it's a radio studio Yes, sorry about that <laughs> uh, but uh, having said that let me just grab something that happens to be yeah. here on the table yeah, okay. great it's a clipboard yep yeah. so i'm just going to make a Shhh. sound Yep. Yeah. and i'm going to move this clipboard toward and away from my face I'm trying not to bang the microphone here okay
0: Okay, what Daniel's demonstrating here is the way sound changes depending on what's around you. And certain animals can use those sound changes to get a sense of their surroundings. It's called flash sonar or echolocation. But while bats and dolphins are born with this ability, for Daniel, for any human, it's an adaptation.
3: Wow. Now, the shishing isn't really conducive because it will tire you out. So instead of
0: shushing, Daniel learned to click his tongue. And he uses these clicks to get all kinds of information. Clicks go out, the sound bounces off, say, a table, it comes back to Daniel's ears, and it helps him figure out how close the table is. You would know there's something there. Okay, don't bump into it. But he can also tell whether that object has a hard or soft surface.
3: And as I'm talking now and moving this thing toward me and away from me, you can kind of hear this sort of uh, hard surface compared to something like this. What I have in front of me is, is absorbent.
0: Daniel learned to
3: detect those kind of small differences when he was just over a year old. In the house, I might have discovered the curtains sounded softer than the than the wall. Um, the refrigerator, you know, would have sounded different from the, the oven. So an infant will start to build these things up very, very fast. I mean, an infant's brain is just really, really conducive to that. In fact, what's going on in Daniel's brain is similar to
0: what happens in your brain when you see with your eyes. He really does get a kind
3: of mental image of the world around him. I refer to it as a three-dimensional fuzzy geometry. Hmm. Um, so you get uh, three-dimensional representations of physical surfaces and their arrangements and layouts. So it is a form of seeing. And that process, for Daniel, it's all about neural real estate.
0: Basically, your brain's capacity to handle different information. And for most people, vision is what takes up a lot of that neural real estate.
3: Some would say as much as 40% of the brain is, is dedicated to visual processing. So that's a large chunk of brain. The computational power is already there. It's just a matter of kind of changing the input channels.
0: And that's exactly what Daniel has done. He's adapted to his blindness by basically repurposing his brain ever since he was a baby, as he described on the TED stage.
3: I was born with bilateral retinoblastoma, retinal cancer. My right eye was removed at seven months of age. I was 13 months when they removed my left eye. The first thing I did upon awakening from that last surgery, was to climb out of my crib and begin wandering around the intensive care nursery. (laughs) Probably looking for the one who did this to me. (laughs) And that curiosity never really stopped.
0: He just found a new way to keep exploring. And of course, his parents played a pretty big role, but mostly they did that by letting Daniel find his own way
3: to adapt. They understood that ignorance and fear were but matters of the mind, and the mind is adaptable. They believed that I should grow up to enjoy the same freedoms and responsibilities as everyone else. In their own words, I would move out, which I did when I was 18. I will pay taxes, thanks. And they knew the difference between love and fear. Fear immobilizes us in the face of challenge. They knew that blindness would pose a significant challenge. I was not raised with fear. They put my freedom first before all else, because that is what love does. For Daniel, this was the main difference between him and
0: other blind kids. He was given the freedom to figure things out on his own. And in this way, Daniel was both pretty normal and really unusual because he was a blind kid who was raised more or less like
3: a kid who could see. Sighted infants learn to see from experiencing the world and by systematically withdrawing our support from the infant. We're not holding their hand for support all of this time and we're not bringing things to them all of this time because we expect that by the age of about 12 months that they're gonna start taking their first steps and we're all very happy about that and if you're lucky you capture it on film. That is not the way this happens for blind kids. Yeah. But it is the way it happened for me. I mean, when you were a, a a child, were you just sort of
0: like climbing trees and like climbing stuff and and trying to you know just do the things that any kid
3: does? <laughs> yeah. So I pressed hard to get into things and onto things and up things and over things. So uh, and you know it, it's kind of funny in a way because with blind kids we tend to characterize blindness with immobility. Yeah. And. We couldn't be further from the truth, because uh, for a blind kid to act upon that sense of curiosity that tends to be natural, they have to move, they have to become very physical about their environment. And to restrict that is devastating. So
0: today, Daniel spends most of his time trying to undo those restrictions. And he does this by teaching kids who are also blind how to do what he does, how to get around the world more independently. And what he's constantly telling those kids is that their social barriers are much
3: bigger than their physical ones. Think for a moment about your own impressions of blindness. Think about your reactions when I first came onto the stage or the prospect of your own blindness. The terror is incomprehensible to most of us, because blindness is thought to epitomize ignorance and unawareness, hapless exposure to the ravages of the dark unknown. How poetic. <laughs> Fortunately for me, my parents were not poetic, they were pragmatic. I was not raised to think of myself as in any way remarkable. I have always regarded myself, much like anyone else who navigates the dark unknowns of their own challenges. Is that so remarkable? I do not use my eyes, I use my brain. Now, someone somewhere must think that's remarkable or I wouldn't be up here. But (laughs) let's consider this for a moment. Everyone out there, who has ever faced a challenge? Raise your hands. Whoosh. OK, lots of hands going up. A moment, let me do a head count. This will take a while. OK, lots of hands in the air, keep them up. Those of you who use your brains to navigate these challenges, put your hands down. OK, anyone with your hands still up? as challenges of your own. (laughs) So we all face challenges, and we all face the dark unknown, which is endemic to most challenges, which is what most of us fear, Okay, But we all have brains that activate to allow us to navigate the journey through these challenges.
0: Do you think that you adapted to your blindness, or do you think that you adapted to a world that is
3: designed for people who can see? Both, it would be both, because you adapt to your conditions, and your conditions include your characteristics as well as the characteristics around you. So a creature, like a dolphin who functions mostly in the dark, had to develop a way of functioning in the dark. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so they developed their sonar, same with bats. Well, bats very cleverly realized, you know what? Most creatures in the world see and don't really travel very much in the dark. So why not travel in the dark? So um, I guess as as a human who was blind, I adapted to my blindness by finding a different way to see in a world that isn't really conducive to not seeing. I mean, it seems
0: like you, you, know, you did what humans are just kind of naturally meant to do, right? Like we are wired to do this, that, that our bodies, our minds, we, we adapt to the circumstances
3: and the challenges around us. That's just it. One of the first critical functions of our brain is to adapt, to adapt to conditions, to understand its conditions. So if you try to contrive around that, you're seriously second guessing what the brain is capable of. So I would say that that's true. I would say that, that the brain is naturally inclined to adapt. And really what my, what my own circumstances did when I was younger was to, to let that play out.
0: Daniel Kish, he founded World Access for the Blind. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. So, we've been hearing about all the amazing ways humans have adapted to survive. But what happens when people don't adapt, or rather won't adapt?
4: I'm just fascinated by the year 2042.
0: It's a year Rich Benjamin... Hello. ...is really interested in.
4: And I'm senior fellow at Demos. Which is a
0: public policy organization where Rich studies inequality and race. And by 2042...
4: At present, that's when the best demography shows that whites will no longer be an American majority.
0: So give or take a few years we're just about 30 years away from white Americans no longer being the majority in America,
4: which is why Rich Benjamin has been asking how white people are attempting or not attempting to adapt with increasing diversity. And to answer
0: this question, Rich zeroed in on a trend, places where white populations weren't shrinking but growing, cities and towns he started to call white-topias.
4: A whiteopia has three qualities. First, a whiteopia has posted at least 6% population growth since 2000. Secondly, the majority of that growth, often upwards of 90%, comes from white migrants. And the third quality of a whiteopia is that it has a special feel, a je ne sais quoi, a social charm. And so once I kind of identified the phenomenon of fast-growing white communities with white immigrants, I just had to poke into this.
0: Rich decided he didn't just want to sit at a desk and pour over census data.
4: He wanted to live. I
3: did, I did. In
4: these white-topias. I just didn't want to be an armchair sociologist and sort of imagine what these places are like. I really decided that in order to understand what, was going on, what these communities are, how they're ticking, I had to go there myself. I guess um, this
0: is a place where we should describe you physically because it's the radio. And so lots of people don't know what you look like. (laughs) So tell me what you look like.
4: I am a dark skinned black person. And so, yeah, that was an interesting wrinkle.
0: Rich spent about two years living in a few different Whitopias. He really approached it like being an anthropologist. He went to community meetings, he figured out who the influential people were, and he got to know them, as he explained on
4: the TED stage. First stop, St. George, Utah, a beautiful town of red rock landscapes. I rented a home at the Entrada, one of the town's premier gated communities, there were no Motel Sixes or Howard Johnsons for me. I lived in Whitopia as a resident and not like a visitor. I rented myself this home by phone. <laughs> golf is the perfect, seductive symbol of Whitopia. When I went on my journey, I had barely ever held a golf club. By the time I left, I was golfing at least three times a week. (laughs) Golf helps people bond. Some of the best interviews I ever scored during my trip were on the golf courses. I also played poker every weekend. It was Texas Hold'em with a $10 buy-in. My poker mates may have been bluffing about the hands that they drew, but they weren't bluffing about their social beliefs. Some of the most raw, salty conversations I ever had during my journey were at the poker table. But it wasn't all fun. Immigration turned out to be a big issue in this Whitopia. The St. George's Citizens' Council on Illegal Immigration held regular and active protests against immigration. And so what I gleaned from this Whitopia is what a hot debate this would become.
0: You're, like, having these conversations about, about race and immigration in these white-topias. You're an African-American man in the middle of all this. I mean, did you find, like, you needed to, like, code switch so you could adapt a, a bit more?
4: Yes. As a researcher... As a non-member of these communities guy, I absolutely had to code switch and I had to adapt into these communities. But the thing is, I am a particular type of person. You know, I often shudder to think what it would be like, for, for example, an undocumented worker to adapt to these communities. What would it be like, for example, for a random black family to adapt to these communities from an urban area? So I was often thinking about the issue of adaptation.
0: Which is something Rich had to contend with on his next stop, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. We'll hear more from Rich Benjamin about his journey through Whitopia in a moment. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and this is the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First to TIAA. In the past three years, TIAA has shared $10 billion in profits not with shareholders but with participants, TIAA Retirement Plan customers. And for years, it's provided personalized financial advice at no extra cost, regardless of the size of their accounts. TIAA gives back to participants so participants can give back to the world. Learn more at TIAA.org. Thanks also to Starbucks. For the past 43 years, Starbucks has served their bold signature espresso. But for the first time ever, they're introducing a second espresso, Starbucks Blonde Espresso. It's smooth and subtly sweet. So whatever your drink is, from a flat white to an iced Americano, try it with Starbucks Blonde Espresso. And as always, you can order ahead on your Starbucks app. And just one more quick thing, we're asking for your help by telling us what you like and how we might be able to improve our shows by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. It takes just a few minutes and you'll do all of us here at the TED Radio Hour a huge favor by filling it out. So go to npr.org slash podcast survey. And thanks. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, we're exploring ideas about adaptation, or in some cases, the inability to adapt. And a minute or so ago, we were hearing from Rich Benjamin. He's a writer and demographer, and Rich, who is African-American, decided to live in some of the whitest communities in America, places he calls white-topias. Now, these aren't places where a lot of white people happen to live, but rather, these are communities that are growing because white people are choosing to move there.
4: One of the things I want to point out is it's not just a function of human nature. So people would tell me birds of a feather flock together. But really, when we think about adaptation, we think about how communities are designed, how they are zoned, how they are built. And so to sort of pick apart the underbelly of how communities are built, you begin to discover who lives there and why. Next stop, Coeur in the beautiful North Idaho Panhandle. I rented this place for myself also by phone. <laughs> in 1993, around 11,000 families and cops fled Los Angeles after the L.A. racial unrest for North Idaho, and they've built an expatriated community. There's no surprise that North Idaho has a strong gun culture. In fact, it is said, North Idaho has more gun dealers than gas stations. (laughs) What I learned from North Idaho is the peculiar brand of paranoia that can permeate a community when so many cops and guns are around. About a seven-minute drive from my Hayden Lake cabin, was the compound of Aryan Nations, the white supremacist group. America's promised ministry, the religious arm of Aryan Nations, happened to have a three-day retreat during my visit. So I decided to crash it. (laughs) I'm the only non-Aryan journalist I'm aware of ever to have done so. Among the many memorable episodes of that retreat <laughs> is when Abe, an Aryan siled up next to me, he slapped my knee and he said, hey Rich, I just want you to know one thing. We are not white supremacists, we are white separatists. We don't think we're better than you, we just want to be away from you.
0: Okay, this is obviously an extreme example, because presumably most of the people you met were not white supremacists. But I mean, were these communities made up of people who are,
4: you know, kind of choosing not to adapt? Not consciously. It's not that they've consciously put their head in any sand and said, oh, I refuse to adapt. I hate minorities. I'm going Whitopia." That's not what I discovered. Rather, what I discovered is that many people in Whitopia feel pushed from urban areas, feel pushed from the fact they feel their communities have changed in certain cities, feel pushed by alleged crime. The pull, the draw, the allure of Whitopia is perceived safety, friendliness, comfort, property values, qualities they associate to whiteness in and of itself. Yeah, I mean, what? but what explains that...
0: Anxiety is it this sort of fear that the sort of the comfort and the power that people have enjoyed will they won't have access to it anymore? I, I I'm trying to figure out what what do you like how do you explain that anxiety?
4: I understand that anxiety academically, and what I discovered is that most Americans want to work through it. Most Americans we're just wonderful and reasonable, and we want a better country. That said, I definitely think there is a minority that wants to double down on its anxiety, that wants a border, that wants a fence, that wants an us versus them mentality in every line. What are some of the things that have to happen on an individual basis? Like Adaptation also
0: requires, like I guess, a, a willingness to change and a willingness to kind of be open to change. I mean do you think that that's a prerequisite
4: yes i believe that adaptation requires openness it requires a willingness to understand others a willingness to understand oneself and i believe in that willingness comes an openness to change in that openness that's how you adapt in a very concrete way you adapt your assumptions you adapt your what you do on a day-to-day basis you adapt how you treat others And it's just the work we have to do. Many of my smug, urban, liberal friends couldn't believe I would go on such a venture. The reality is that many white Americans are affable and kind. Interpersonal race relations, how we treat each other as human beings, is vastly better than in my parents' generation. As Americans, we often find ways to cook for each other, to dance with each other, to host with each other. But why can't that translate into how we treat each other as communities? It's a devastating irony, how we have gone forward as individuals and backwards as communities.
0: When you think about any any species and even the human species like we can adapt to different environments and we have right like over the course of human history you know homo sapiens have adapted to their environments um, we've developed culture and ethnicity and all these things but it seems like the one thing we haven't quite figured out as a species is how to
4: adapt to each other um yes and no in my thinking and what this journey has taught me is It need not be the case either way. It simply depends on how we conduct ourselves. Bad policy, bad political choices, bad social choices leads to the conclusion that we do not adapt together well. Good policy on the other hand, good social choices, good learning, good understanding, good research can lead us in the other direction where we better adapt to one another. So all I'm saying is I just don't believe it's a foregone conclusion of how we adapt. My point is, that doesn't have to be this country's path.
0: Rich Benjamin wrote the book Searching for Whitetopia. You can see his full talk at TED.com. So if, as Rich Benjamin experienced, human adaptation can be complicated, imagine trying to get an inanimate object to adapt. For Janet Echelman, her entire work is dependent on the adaptability of her medium. Janet's an artist and mainly a sculptor, but not the kinds of things carved from stone or cast in metal that sit on pedestals in museums. Janet's work is mounted high above the ground.
1: First of all, there's no pedestal. <laughs> they're floating works. They all are suspended from above and they're soft. And I think that's important. They adapt to the environment around them. There was a big storm in Denver when my sculpture was there. The street lamp beneath it was felled by the strength of the wind. Wow! And my sculpture was completely unscathed. The sculpture has this, it's a way of being in the world where you adapt and you let things flow through you, but aren't pushed over by them.
0: Janet's work is literally in the sky. and She sculpts with strands of fiber, and it looks a little like netting, except shaped and designed to take on a form. And these giant sculptures are installed in the empty spaces between buildings or hung above city plazas.
1: And they're layers of translucent colored material that changes with changing patterns of light in the day and the night. And every gust of wind sends a ripple effect through the work. So I want the sculpture to always be changing and evolving and revealing something new. They're very sort of delicate and ephemeral. And in a way, I just create a structure and then the changing forces of nature adapt the form and create all of this variety and endless discovery.
0: And even though these sculptures are flowing and billowing, the form is entirely adaptable to weather, to light, and to different public urban spaces. But the idea itself to create pieces out of soft fibers also came out of a very real, artistic adaptation. It's a story Janet told on the TED stage.
1: Fourteen years ago, I first encountered this ordinary material, fishnet, used the same way for centuries. I never studied sculpture, engineering, or architecture. In fact, after college, I applied to seven art schools and was rejected by all seven. I went off on my own to become an artist. And I painted for 10 years when I was offered a Fulbright to India. Promising to give exhibitions of paintings, I shipped my paints and arrived in Mahabalipuram. The deadline for the show arrived. My paints didn't. I had to do something. This fishing village was famous for sculpture, so I tried bronze casting. But to make large forms was too heavy and expensive. I went for a walk on the beach, watching the fishermen bundle their nets into mounds on the sand. I'd seen it every day, but this time I saw it differently. A new approach to sculpture, a way to make volumetric form without heavy, solid materials. I discovered their soft surfaces revealed every ripple of wind in constantly changing patterns. I was mesmerized. My first satisfying sculpture was made in collaboration with these fishermen. It's a self-portrait titled "Wide Hips." <laughs> I guess we should describe this uh,
0: self-portrait "Wide Hips" because, to me, it sort of looks like it looks like an upside-down parachute. How would you describe it?
1: Well, I was sleeping under mosquito nets, so there's a white cone-like form that oh, is yeah. my mosquito net. Yeah, that's right. It's exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's been yeah. cut into panels and sewn. Uh, Beneath it is almost like a bowl-like form of hand-knotted netting. And up the center, the netting continues up to the top.
0: It's it's amazing because, like, you go there, everything kind of falls to pieces. You had to adapt to the situation. And then you found this material, and and this changes your life.
1: Yeah, that's true. The thing about that experience of having to adapt in the moment with what's there, is that it happens to me all the time. Hmm. It's not that it just happened once at the beginning of my sort of birth as a sculptor. And that's how I keep my own practice alive. That's what makes me excited to wake up and walk into the studio, Yeah, is that each project is a new set of constraints. And I'm going to find some new solution that I don't yet know.
0: The first sculptures Janet produced in India, the ones made out of fishnets, they were pretty small.
1: But it's they were small when I made them, but I wished they were immense.
0: And so when her first big commission came in to create a permanent sculpture over a large traffic circle in the coastal city of Porto in Portugal, Janet had to adapt her artwork to a massive scale.
1: For two years, I searched for a fiber that could survive ultraviolet rays, salt air, pollution, and at the same time remain soft enough to move fluidly in the wind. We had to engineer it to move gracefully in an average breeze and survive in hurricane winds. I found a brilliant aeronautical engineer who designed sails for America's Cup racing yachts named Peter Heppel. He helped me tackle the twin challenges of precise shape and gentle movement. I couldn't build this the way I knew because hand-tied knots weren't going to withstand a hurricane. So I developed a relationship with an industrial fishnet factory, learned the variables of their machines, and figured out a way to make lace with them. Three years and two children later, I walked underneath it for the first time, as I watched the wind's choreography unfold, I felt sheltered and at the same time connected to limitless sky. My life was not going to be the same.
0: When people, you know, are there in Porto or, you know, or in other cities where you have artwork and they're standing underneath your sculptures and just like looking up at them, like, what, do, what do you hope they feel?
1: It's like an invitation for a moment to just look up and notice the patterns of the world around us. In a way, my work has many levels of meaning, but you don't need any of them. You just need to be underneath it and to physically experience what it's like to be underneath it. Yeah. There's something that I can't describe in words because... It's pre-verbal. It's like a memory of being a really small child. And the world is above you. And soft and gentle and flowing, you know, like my mother's skirts flowing in the wind. Yeah. Do you
0: remember when you were a kid, like, go crawling under and inside her skirt? Like, I remember, like, as maybe I was three or four years old, like, hiding in there.
1: Mhm. <laughs> I also used to build forts out of sheets and yeah. blankets oh, and
0: chairs, yeah.
1: Yeah, and like tuck them under chairs and under ta- so it it's that kind of feeling where the world is big and safe.
0: Artist and sculptor Janet Eckelman. You can see some of her work and her TED Talk at ted.npr.org. <laughs>
3: Yeah.
0: Hey, thanks for listening to our show on adaptation this week. If you want to find out more about who's on it, you can go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out TED.com. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkinpour, and Casey Herman, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, you can write us at TEDRadioHour at NPR.org. And you can follow us on Twitter. It's at TEDRadioHour. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour
1: from NPR.